Let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, our topic for this, or our passage for this morning is going to be eight, verses 8 through 13. But would you read with me beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had created. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil, or experiencing, knowing the experience of good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. How does an infinite, holy, sovereign God respond to the, to the disobedience of his creation. How does he do that? Will he, will he wipe them out altogether and start over? Of course, I guess that was a possibility. Will he look the other way? As if nothing had happened and hope that they obey the next time. You know, sometimes that's what we do with our kids. So we don't want to discipline. We just kind of ignore the fact that they disobeyed and hope that they do better next time. Well, those are fair questions, actually. We'll learn from the remainder of chapter 3. That God will not, in fact, cannot, he cannot, just simply look the other way and hope that we do better next time. That man is more faithful next time. Holiness will not allow that. And we will see, somewhat surprisingly, I think, that God doesn't eliminate the man and the woman altogether. We might have expected that, given, uh, given the warning that he had made very clear to them, on the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Mot tamut, you will surely die. It's a sure thing, 100%, no exception. You're going to die on the day that you eat from it. So if we were just reading this for the first time and didn't know that we were already here, so we couldn't have died, if we didn't know how the story worked out, we might have wondered why he didn't just wipe everybody out. That seems like what he had said he was going to do. It sounds clear enough, but that's not what he does either. The rest of this chapter will tell us what happened. How does God respond to disobedience? Does he just look the other way? No, he didn't just look the other way. Did he wipe them out altogether? Obviously, no, he didn't wipe them out altogether. There's something very special that happens here. The remainder of the chapter falls into three sections. The first of which we'll study today in verses 8 through 13. The confrontation with the Lord in which these two sinners... Hearing him, feared him, and hid among the trees. So the first see, thing we see is God will seek them. He's going to go after them, and he will initiate this confrontation. Now next week, we'll study verses 14 through 19, the oracles. And it's not the curse. We need to be very careful of that. The oracles of the Lord, in which new measures were given to the serpent, to the woman, and then to the man. To the serpent, to the woman, and then into the man. And then two weeks from now, we'll study verses 20 through 24, the clothing that the Lord provided as a provision for this new order that will take place. That's in verses 20 through 
through 24. These sections are so significant theologically that we're going to devote a complete lesson to each one of them. This, this chapter is foundational, not just for our understanding of the book of Genesis. This chapter is foundational for our understanding of the Bible, for everything else in God's wonderful, gracious self-disclosure. We've got to get this. Because if we don't get this, our understanding of everything else will be flawed. We've got to get this. So it's worth spending the next few weeks on. In the final portion of the chapter, you will notice, not just in today's lesson, but today combined with next week, that there's this pattern. First the man is confronted, then the woman, then there's an oracle against the serpent, then against the woman and the man. So it goes man, woman, serpent, woman, man, in that order. Now, you're also going to notice that there will be no confrontation with the serpent. Today, we're just going to see a confrontation first with the man and then next with the woman. There won't be a confrontation with the serpent. Ever wondered why? That confrontation's already occurred. The Bible doesn't give us a specific mention of it, but we assume that confrontation already occurred a long time ago. Satan already had his confrontation. This confrontation is going to be first with the man and then next with the woman. But notice that pattern. Man, woman, serpent, woman, man. Now, verses 8 through 13, our passage for today. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman, and you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In verse 8, or verses 8 through 13, we see this post-fall confrontation. And this has to happen. Because God, because God is holy, he cannot simply look the other way. And there are three very significant theological issues that I invite, for you, I invite you to observe or look for as we dig into this short section. These are the three theological issues that I want you to take take special attention of as we study these verses, verses 8 through 13. After sinning, I want you to observe that after sinning, the man and the woman do not seek God. Just the opposite, in fact. They hide from him. First, very significant theological issue from this passage. After sinning, the man and the woman do not seek God. God seeks them. We need to keep that order in our minds. God seeks them. That's going to be a foundational issue in the doctrine of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. God seeks us as fallen beings. We don't have a tendency to seek God quite the opposite. First theological principle. The second theological principle, we studied this last week, but let me remind you of it because it's going to come up again this week. This is, this is where we actually see it played out. After the fall, this is the second theological issue now. After the fall, the man and the woman still retain the aspects of personality that are a part of the image of God and man. Intellect, emotion, will, uh, ability for rational thought. We studied those things in the past. And you'll recall from our study last week 
that the image of God in man was effaced, but it was not erased as a result of the fall. As a result of sin, the image of God in man was effaced, but it wasn't erased. We still retain that image, but every aspect of that image has been damaged. Every single aspect. Some theologians of the past would say, well, perhaps man's intellect and emo- or man's intellect and will were damaged, man's intellect and emotion were damaged, and, and so forth, but, but other parts were not. Every aspect of the image of God in man has been marred. It has been damaged. It has been effaced, but not erased. It, it's like if you have a billboard out in the, in the street, and maybe some knucklehead doesn't like what you say on that billboard, they may take a can of paint and throw it up on that billboard and efface the billboard. They, they damage the billboard, they, uh, but they don't erase the billboard. <laughs> I don't know how often you drive down the Southwest Freeway. I, I loved it. Of course, it took them a long time to do it, but I loved it when they put those bridges up, you know, those real nice bridges that are on calendars and so forth. It really gives a little something special, almost something Chicago-ish to, to, that, to that area, you know, so where there's really there's some, there's some sense of, of uh, community and, and heritage there, and hopefully it'll stay there for a long time. There forget when they before they did that. I was driving along that way at approximately six six oh five something like that in the morning, very cold morning, and I remember seeing a car in front of me uh, just just kind of wander off the road and, and end up at a stop over on the shoulder. I didn't realize till later in that day somebody had had dropped a chunk of concrete off that and had gone right through her windshield and had killed her. I was literally second and a half behind her, but I didn't see the concrete fall, but putting it all back together in the make of the car and everything, that's exactly what had happened. So I was glad when they tore those old bridges down so people couldn't do that anymore, or at least it would be harder for them. But I, I love those, but you know what bothers me? People are starting to efface those. They're starting to write graffiti on them. But they're not erasing the bridge, are they? Bridge is still there. Cars can still go back and forth across it, but sometimes it just doesn't look as beautiful as it should look. Now, when we talk about the image of God in man being effaced but not erased, there's, it's more marring than that. But you can still drive across the bridge. And so we're going to see the man and the woman are going to have a conversation with God. They're going to, to, to interact with him. They're going to make a choice. So they dialogue with him. But, but their dialogue, we'll see, is full of evasiveness and self-vindication. So there's something wrong with it, but they can still speak to him. They reason with God, but we'll see that their reasoning is in many ways faulty now. So second theological principle, after the fall, the man and the woman still retain aspects of the image of God. The image of God in man has been effaced, but it has not been erased. Very, very important. Also a very important soteriological issue. And the third, and this is an experiential issue that all of us face, all of the time. All of us face this all the time. So don't be nudging your wife or your husband on this one, or your kids. Human beings have a tendency towards self-vindication. We have a tendency towards self-vindication. And before we can become right with God, this tendency must be set aside, and an acknowledgement of our real guilt must be made. Now, in, in this initial sense, we're talking about real guilt in the terms of salvation. 
But the, 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 attitude, the, the aspect of guilt also comes in with the issue of sanctification or our spiritual growth as well. But the real problem with fallen human beings, it's not just guilt feelings or feelings of, of shame, as some might assert. Our problem as fallen human beings is real guilt. We're really guilty. It's not that just we feel guilty. And if we can get rid of that guilt feeling, everybody, everything's going to be fine. No, a thousand times no. Until we come to grips with that, our experience with God will never be what it was designed to be. That's, our, that's true of our initial experience in salvation, but it's also true of our subsequent experience. And so I, since I'm assuming that everyone, if not hopefully everyone here today, has experienced salvation positionally, we'll speak of position in terms of sanctification now. We're never going to grow into that deep relationship with our Savior that we really want to have until we admit from time to time that we're really guilty, that we really have done something we're not supposed to do, and we know that it was wrong, and I did it. Now, some people say, well, you just need to say, I did it. No, you've got to, when you confess sin, you're admitting what I did was wrong, and that's different, because you can say, I did it in defiance. And that's not confession. Confession is saying, Father, I have sinned. Not just I did it. I've sinned. What I did was really wrong. And no excuses. No, listen, the, the reason I did it, Father, was this. You know, we're not looking, when we do that, we're not really looking for forgiveness. We're, we're trying to justify what we've done so we don't need it quite so badly. We've got to admit what we did was wrong if we're going to have that walk with God that we really want to have. So those are the three theological issues that I want you to look for in the time that we spend in these verses. First, after sinning, the man and the woman don't seek God. God seeks them. Very a foundational issue with regard to soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. Secondly, after the fall, the man and the woman still retain the image of God, although it's been effaced. It hasn't been erased. It's been effaced. And third, human beings have a tendency towards self-vindication. We've got to get away from that before we're going to be right with God, whether it's in salvation or whether it's in sanctification. We've got to come to grips that sometimes we do things that are wrong. And we can't make excuses for it, just like they're going to try here this morning. And the excuses almost seem humorous if it wasn't so terrible. But they make excuses, and we do the same thing. You know, I'm just having a bad day. I had a headache. That's why I yelled at you. Well, maybe you had a headache, but that's no excuse. You see, you know what? If, it, if there was an excuse for it, a lot of us want God to excuse our sins. This is why I did that. Oh, okay, well, you're excused. Well, listen, if, if there's an excuse for it, there's no need for forgiveness. See, what we're talking about is after all the excuses are gone, what's left? Real guilt. And that's what we come and take to God in confession of sin. So we need to keep these straight. We get rid of real guilt initially by grace through faith, faith alone and Christ alone. We get through the real guilt after salvation by confession. Three theological principles that are very important. Now, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and the wife, uh, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So initially you see the first theological principle in action here. They run away from him. He is seeking them. The description of God walking in the garden probably indicates that the member of the Trinity in view here is the second person of the Trinity. 
the one that we will later call Jesus Christ. Now, they wouldn't have known him by the name Jesus at that time. He was Yahweh. But because he is a visible member of the Godhead, and the Father is invisible, no one has seen him at any time, we have to assume, we're left to assume, and I think it's a fair assumption, a fair theological assumption, that this is Jesus in pre-incarnate form. Now, the cool of the day, a lot has been made about this. I've, I've kind of liked looking at this verse and saying, well, there's, there's a, in, in perfect environment, there's a part of the day that's cool. Uh, but uh, I don't think that's really, that's really not an appropriate understanding here. We're probably taking it a little too far. The cool of the day is literally the wind of the day or the breeze of the day. If you look at Old Testament scholarship, almost all of them hold that this is toward the end of the day. And that's, that's very, very uh, possible. Maybe the late afternoon or the evening. But it should be observed immediately that this section is not a report of sinners seeking after God's forgiveness. Not at all. I wish it was. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The man and the woman are engaged in the futile exercise of hiding from an omnipotent, omnipresent God. How do you hide from omnipresence? Can't be done. David said, where can I go to flee from thy presence? Now, he wasn't acting like he wanted to. He was, he was understanding the doctrine of omnipresence to be one of the most comforting doctrines in all the Scripture. There's nowhere you can go that God's not there. Now, if you're walking in fellowship with him, that's a good thing. If you're not, then that's a problem. But that's something you need to get past. You know, you get stuck in an elevator, God's there. You go to Africa, God wakes right up there with you in the morning. You're in Canada, God's there. You're in southwest Houston, God's there. You're in northwest Houston, God's there. I think you get the point. Where can I go to hide from that presence? Nowhere. And that's a good thing, David says. So they're engaged in a futile exercise of attempting to hide from an omnipresent and ever-present and everywhere-present God. That's futile. When it comes to our salvation. God had to make the first move. This is introduced here in its primitive form. Uh, you can call it its seed form. Doctrines have to be introduced somewhere. And then it's progressively revealed throughout Scripture. It's expanded upon throughout Scripture. When it comes to our salvation, God has to make the first move, and he did so. He makes the first move with Adam and Eve, and he makes the first move with you. From the Scriptures, as the Scriptures unfold in the progress of Revelation. We learn God desires the salvation of all. He loves the world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Not just certain aspects of His creation. He loves every single one of us. And He desires our salvation. Paul comes right out and says it. God desires all men to be saved. Christ died to make salvation possible for all men. So we can assume that God will then seek all men. This doesn't guarantee, sadly, it doesn't guarantee salvation for all. Because there is a human side to this equation, and that involves responsibility. Our responsibility is to accept the fact, to recognize the fact that we're sinful and we need a Savior, we can't save ourselves, and to look to God for our salvation. To place our faith and our faith alone in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins, and to grant us eternal life. Jesus Christ crucified, Jesus Christ risen. That's the Jesus that we place our faith in. Some will exercise faith, and regrettably, some will not. 
Some recognize their need for salvation and acknowledge their real guilt before a holy God. And others stubbornly, and I do mean that, I mean it emphatically, but I mean it sadly as well, others stubbornly refuse. They refuse to recognize they have real guilt and they rebel against their creator. They remain in rebellion against their creator. So in the first verse, we see this first theological principle worked out. In verse 8, we see the first theological principle that man, after the fall, doesn't seek God. God seeks man. And that's grace. He didn't have to do that. He comes looking for every single one of us. And I'm so glad that he does that. Now in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, actually verses 9 through 12, God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, this is man speaking, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Here God appears as a gentle father searching for his child. We've been praying for this African pastor who's been looking for his daughter now for two weeks. He's about to go to another country to search for her, to look for her, because we believe that some bad things might have happened or some harm a kidnapping may have done here we see our eternal father looking for those who have rebelled against him there is no indication at all that little betty has rebelled against her father not at all and he seeks her because he loves her because he's a father and which one of you fathers in this room wouldn't go to the end of the earth to seek for your child if something like that happened And you love them. But listen, this is a point in time where mankind had just rebelled against him. Paul describes us as enemies of God before the cross. Or rather, before we accepted the cross. Yet he still seeks us. He sought out Adam and Eve. He's a gentle father. He knows full well where they are and what they've done. This question is rhetorical to the max. Where are you? He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they've done. He's giving them an opportunity to open the conversation. He's giving them an opportunity to dialogue with them. He seeks them to allow them to acknowledge their guilt. That's why he asked him, where are you? When we admit our sinfulness, either, again, before salvation as a part of coming to Christ, or after salvation as a part of coming back to him in fellowship, We are simply admitting to God something that He already knows. We're not informing Him of anything. He's always known what we've done. He's always known. He always knew where they were. He's giving us an opportunity. Just like a mother is fully aware. You've probably been in this situation dozens of times. You're fully aware of what's happened when your little daughter is standing in front of you and she's got chocolate all over her face. And you say, have you been into that cookie jar? Well, you know full well she's been in the cookie jar because there's cookie crumbs all over the place. You're giving her an opportunity to say, yes, ma'am, you know, I, I got into it. I wasn't supposed to do that. You see the point? That's what God is doing with them here. When we come to God in confession of sin after salvation, because that's the status I think most of us are in, I hope, all of us today. When we come to God in confession of sin after salvation, we're not informing God of anything. He already knows what you did, so that's not, so just to say, I did it, well, thank you very much, I appreciate that a lot, but that's not getting anywhere. What he wants from you is to say, what I did was wrong. That's, that's what a confession of sin is. This I did was wrong. And that's what he's going to want from them. 
what I did was wrong. You know, think sometimes of these courtroom dramas. I used to want, I used to love Perry Mason. He always won his case. I mean, maybe there was one time he didn't, I've, I never saw that episode, but always won his case. And, you know, there, there would be this intense drama, and then a lot of times at the end, you remember how that old show would end? He, Perry would just get him so frustrated that at the very end, that, that defendant would just get up and say, Yes, I did it! I did it! I killed her! I wanted to kill her, and I'd do it again if I had the chance, you know? And then everybody's going, oh, I can't believe he really did it. And Perry just puts his pencil down like, well, I knew she did it the whole time. You know? I'm just trying to get him to admit it. You know, everybody's shocked, but Perry's not shocked. Listen, everybody else might be shocked by our sins, but God's not shocked. He knew all along what had happened. You know, confession is in our best interest. It, it's in our best interest to get it off our chest, to walk back into fellowship with him and that's what's happening here at a, at a bit of a different level. Look at verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. You see, in some sense, the, the sense is not made crystal clear here, because God created these bodies. Before the fall, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Remember that from the end of chapter 2. Now, once the fall takes place, all of a sudden they look at each other differently. Maybe it's because they look different in certain aspects. They're more similar to each other than, than they are with the beast, but there's still differences. I, the, the text is not crystal clear on, on this particular aspect of it. But they now perceive their nakedness as a source of shame. They perceive their nakedness as a source of shame. And you remember from last week's lesson, they sewed leaves together to cover themselves. Nice try. And actually, in one sense, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, we should applaud the effort they realize something's wrong. You see, their, their eyes were open. They realized something's wrong, that this nakedness now won't be a source of innocence and, and beauty, but it has the potential to be something that's, that's not innocent in beauty. But they attempt to cover themselves. We'll see in a couple of weeks that that attempt wasn't good enough. Their attempt wouldn't do it. They're, they're hiding themselves from one another, and they're hiding themselves from God. God's going to have to provide the solution. God seeks them. A man-made solution won't solve this problem won't solve this problem. It's going to take a God-made solution to solve this problem of sin. And while I'm at that, let me, let me remind you of this, this one soteological issue, this one issue with regard to salvation. This might shock you, so listen real carefully. I don't want you to walk out here and say the wrong thing. Faith doesn't save you. I know I get your attention there. Faith doesn't save you. God saves you. Okay, it's a very important distinction. God saves you by grace through faith. But your faith in itself doesn't save you. God is the one that rescues you. Faith is a responsibility that he gives us. So we shouldn't get on our high horse thinking we've done something great. God saves us on the basis of faith. God is the Savior. We're not our own Savior. You can't sew fig leaves together and get it done. He had to do it. Now, faith is enormous. Faith is foundational to Christianity, of course. But I just want to get the order right. Faith doesn't save. God saves. As a result of faith, based upon faith, by grace. Now, verses 11 and 12, the confrontation with the man specifically. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So God goes right at him. There's only one prohibition. He goes right at him and, and, and asks these questions again that were rhetorical. Then in verse 12, the man said, the woman, the woman, that you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, 
NIA. This is a classic example of self-vindication, shifting the blame to someone else. The woman you gave to be with me. Now, who's he blaming here? Is he taking the blame for himself? No. He's blaming the woman. But look again, my friends. Is he really blaming the woman? The woman that you gave to me. No, it's one step further. It's bad enough. Listen, it's bad enough that he brings the woman into it. He goes past the woman, the woman that you gave me. I was perfectly happy. No, he wasn't. Remember, he wasn't complete. I was perfectly happy naming all these animals by myself. I was in single bliss. And here you brought her along, took a rib out from me. It still hurts, by the way. You took a rib out from me and made her, and look what she did. She was supposed to help me worship, and she helped me fall. Look at what you did to me, God. And people have been doing that ever since. Blaming God for our troubles. He created something perfect, we pervert it, and then we blame Him. Heaven forbid. But then he finally says, and it's almost, I'm going to read it as I believe it happened. The woman which you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree. And I think there's almost an implied pause here. And it's like he's looking at God and said, and I ate it. He admits it. Now, not, not before there's a, a futile attempt at self-indication, but he does admit it. That's what God's after. He's after that admission. Then in verse 13, as we close this passage down, he confronts the woman. Now, his confrontation with the woman is a little intense. It's very emphatic, actually. He, he says to her, what is this that you have done? Now, that has the effect of the way the the structure in the Hebrew is, has the effect of saying something along these lines. What have you done? What in the world have you done? Or do you realize what you've done? This is a very intense question that he asks the woman. And she too tries to transfer the responsibility off of her into someone, onto someone or, or something else. The something else being the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Now, if you've read all through the Bible, you know that she's right about that. She's right. The serpent did deceive her. That's why Eve's sin is not the one that comes down and, and we're all associated with it. It's Adam's sin. She was deceived. But now, does God, does God, does God stop her there? He said, okay, it's okay, it's okay. You were deceived. No problem. Doesn't do that. Doesn't do that. Deception is no excuse. She should, have known, she should have known better, but, but she didn't. And again, like I said last week, don't, men don't get up on our high horses about this one. If, if Satan had come after us, we would have been deceived too. I mean, that's just, I think that's the way it would have worked. But the fact is that this is the, the way it came out. So she tried to transfer responsibility off onto the serpent. And her explanation is correct on one level. But it doesn't excuse the disobedience. Ultimately, she was guilty. Whether she was deceived or not. So if you say, who was the first sinner? Was it Adam or Eve? Well, it was Eve. She's the first sinner. But the sin that comes down to us is actually the second sin, because Adam knew full well what he was doing. And that was the subject of our study last week. Ultimately, she's guilty. Whether she was deceived or not. And in a sense, now not as, as overtly as Adam did. He, she wouldn't, women would not be so crude as that. 
But she does do it. She ultimately, in a sense, she's blaming God as well because who created the serpent? God created the serpent. This, this serpent that God created deceived her. But in the end, she confesses as well. So I'll read this in the way I think it, it should be understood. The serpent deceived me. And I ate. And I ate. In this dialogue, God shows his majesty his omniscience and his power by asking penetrating questions. He gets right to them. He seeks them and he opens the dialogue. He asks the questions. And it's an act of grace on his part. This is the first act of grace in the Bible. You know, before the fall, there wasn't any grace. There wasn't any need for grace. But now God shows forth his grace and his mercy in an incredible way. Although they are initially fearful and defensive, they finally confess. They acknowledge that what they did was wrong, and their confession was sufficient. That's all God was after. The man and the woman did surely die when they ate of the fruit. They died immediately, spiritually, with respect to their spiritual lives, and they began to die physically. In fact, all of creation began to die at that point. So that part was true. Mot tamut, surely you will die. They did. They began to die immediately physically. Uh, immediately they began to die physically, and they died immediately spiritually. And now they have new life. But certain aspects of the fall don't go away just because they confess here. They still will live in a fallen world. God graciously sought them. He graciously confronted them. Now listen, he graciously confronted them. And he laid the groundwork for a solution to their dilemma, which is going to be introduced in the next section. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is perfectly holy. And he can't just look the other way at sin. A price would have to be paid. And the man and the woman would not be able to pay it. If Adam and Eve would, were to have eternal fellowship with the one who created them, we will learn in the subsequent lessons, God's the one that's going to have to pay the price. Oh, Father, we're thank you. We're so thankful that you did. We're thankful that you sent your son to die as our substitute that, that he took our sinfulness upon him, that he didn't become sinful himself in that sense. He never sinned himself, but a totally innocent person took the burden that was due me and all my friends here today. Thank you for that. The words hardly seem adequate. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you love us, and I thank you that you sent your son to die so that we all might be saved. Now, Father, if there's anyone here today who has not received this incredible gift, I do pray that the Holy Spirit would work on them even now as the rest of this day unfolds so that they might, not, so that they might recognize that they do have a problem and it's a problem they can't solve themselves and only God can solve it. And you did, Father. We thank you for that through the death of your Son on the cross. And may they receive the free gift of eternal life by grace through faith before the sun goes down today. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do that. And now for the rest of us, Father, I do pray that you keep us close to you. Don't let us wander. And when we do, when we do inevitably wander away from you, 
I, I do pray that you would do what it takes to get us back, and that we would confess, that we would acknowledge without any form of self-indication or defensiveness, admit that what we did was wrong so that our walk could be restored with you. We thank you for all the provisions that have been made to make this possible, and we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.